just some kind of convenience that people can use so that it's not a joke that people can laugh about cynically, so that it's uh, not an embarrassment to those who belong to it, but a glorious church, something that not only God looks upon with joy, but that we uh, enjoy being part of and are proud to speak about the glorious church. So in past weeks, we've looked at chapter 1, verse 22. God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Why? For the church. Wonderful statement there. Then it went on. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. An astounding statement about the church. And then we looked at the end of chapter 2 at the statement about the church that was built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, and in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So we are the temple of God. We looked at that the last time, an astounding statement again when we think about the glory of the temple, God's holiness, God's presence in his own temple. Right, we're turning to chapter 3 now. I think we'll read from verse 3 to the end of verse 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel... The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. We're looking then at verse 10, and uh, I feel that as we look at verse 10, it may well seem at first glance to be quite difficult Uh, I believe that with the help of God's Spirit this morning, 
we'll be able to look at this from now on with completely different eyes and see it as one of the most amazing statements, a statement which particularly speaks about our relationship with rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. Now, let's read it again. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's a verse about the church. It's just another statement about this glorious church that God wants us to be part of. But it's bringing up the subject this morning of the unseen world of spiritual powers, rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms and our relationship with them. Now next uh, weekend, October the 31st, will be uh, Halloween. And over the last few weeks we've seen in the shop windows uh, different books being advertised and uh, rather ugly masks being sold. No doubt towards the uh, end of this week there'll be children's television programs about witches and uh, broomsticks. There'll be Halloween parties and there'll be people going around with little lanterns and wearing strange kind of costumes. Halloween. Um, I don't know whether you're aware of the, the origin of Halloween celebrations. Really, it is Celtic in origin, the celebration of Halloween. Not the name Halloween, that's later. That was actually um, a, a name that uh, was from All Hallows' Eve, which was the All Saints' Day celebration that the Pope tried to put that weekend to combat paganism. But the actual um, celebration... Uh, around about October the 31st was Celtic in origin and basically it was uh, an honouring by the Druids and the priests of the Celts an honouring of their lord of the dead called Samhain and basically they believed that on October the 31st the lord of the dead gathered the souls of the dead who had been wandering around all through the year and he gathered the souls of the dead and then freed them, released them to go back to their families and to go back to their homes at that uh, particular weekend. And if they were made welcome by their families and their homes, in other words, those living still, then all would be well. But if they were not made welcome, if preparations had not been made for the souls of the dead who were visiting their families again, then that would spell trouble. Can you see the origin of trick or treat round about Halloween time now? And so what happened was the Druids would uh, light huge fires, crops would be sacrificed, animals sometimes would be sacrificed, and there are even occasions where human beings were sacrificed as well round about uh, this time of year. And uh, costumes were worn, animal skins and animal heads round about this time of Celtic uh, celebration of the Lord of the Dead. So here we have, round about Halloween time, a surfacing of the sinister, unseen realm of the demonic. And I hardly need to emphasize for those of you who are gathered here this morning that this is a subject and a theme that uh, the people of God, belonging to the kingdom of light, will have nothing at all to do with. 
Halloween parties have got no place for the children of God, for the people of Christ. They belong to the realm of darkness, not to the realm of light. And so I say that to you just in case any of you find yourself, quite innocently, getting sucked into them. So it's a surfacing of an ever-present unseen reality all the year through of an unseen realm of uh, demonic spirits. You remember that Paul wrote that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So when we're thinking in our text this morning about rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, that's one way in which we can think about such rulers. Demonic spirits, which are real, and which may surface in people's consciousness only from time to time, but nevertheless are an unseen reality. There is, however, another glorious unseen reality, and that is God's holy angels. God's holy angels in a vast host, in vast empires, are every bit as much a reality, says God's word. Moses, in Deuteronomy 33, records how myriads of holy ones accompanied the Lord from Sinai. What a wonderful thought. Myriads of holy ones. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, said to his disciples that at a moment's notice, his father would put 12 legions of angels at his disposal if he needed them. But he wasn't going to request that. And on the island of Patmos, the Apostle John, exiled because of his faith, saw and described the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they are those who gather around the throne of God and ever worship God and they are ministering to God and we'll see in a moment to the saints as well. So there is an unseen world of rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. We don't see it from day to day but nevertheless there is a realm of the demonic and there is a realm of the glorious, holy angels of God. But this morning, what about us? Our text talks about the church in relation to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, what I want to say to you this morning, and I want to substantiate from God's word all the way through, what I have to say is this that this morning, as the church of Jesus Christ, as redeemed humanity, people who are born again of the Spirit of God, we do not need to feel intimidated by demons, nor do we need to feel insignificant or or overawed in the presence of angels. That is the glorious perspective of the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 helps us to draw near to some of these statements, talking about God's intent, 
that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It helps us to draw near to this question of our relationship to rulers and authorities, but we're going to have to go just a little wider to be able to get our perspective totally in, uh, in focus. What I want to say are three statements this morning, and I want to just explain the three statements, um, and there's a sequence in the three statements that I'm going to make. Now, the first is this, and if you're making notes, this is the first statement to make in your notes. The Church of Jesus Christ outranks all other order of created beings. Now, I want you to really digest this this morning, because this promises to be very, very edifying for our spirits. This promises to be very upbuilding. If any of us are tempted to be hanging our heads or feeling oppressed, then the Word of God is going to minister into our spirits this morning and build us up in showing us that God's perspective on redeemed humanity, the church, the bride of Christ... God's perspective on us is absolutely glorious. The church of Jesus Christ outranks all other order of created beings. God declares in his word that we are by no means inferior. On the contrary, it is the church for whom Christ died. It was for us that Jesus came and died on the cross. It was not for demons and it was not for angels. It was for humanity. It was for flesh and blood. It was for people like you and me. And the Bible also says that the church, the people of God, you and me, we have been right from the very beginning of time, of eternity, the central object of all that he's been doing. How about that? Everything right from the beginning of time has been done for us, says the word of God. Furthermore, we examined a few weeks ago that God has placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the angels? No, for the church. Isn't that wonderful? Here we're seeing again and again that the word of God is, is emphasizing that it is the church, the redeemed, who have a rank that outstrips all other orders of created being. Now somebody who knows their Bible quite well might be saying to themselves, just a minute, I know what Psalm 8 says. Psalm 8 talks about how man is wonderful how, uh, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. But then it goes on and says, you have made him a little lower than the angels. So how do you reconcile that with what you're now saying, in saying that redeemed humanity are actually outranking all other orders of created being? A couple of things to say about that. The first is this that the word that is used in Hebrew that is translated in some versions of the Bible, angels, is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is the first 
name ever used in the Bible for God, not for angels. It's used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And so it is that some translations, the American Standard Version, and the margin of the New International Version, include this piece of information. That really, this can be translated, that you have made him a little lower than God himself. But even if the translation were angels, and the writer to the Hebrews seems to assume that, because he talks about how Jesus has been made a little lower than the angels. And he uses this verse from Psalm 8 and uh, quotes it. But even if that is the case, if it is translated uh, angels, the very fact that Scripture can speak of Jesus having been made a little lower than the angels emphasizes that it has got nothing at all to do with inferiority. Jesus even if he was a little lower than the angels temporarily, is not inferior to the angels, is he? They are subject to him. He created them in the beginning. They were created for him. He has the name that is above every other name in heaven or earth. And so there is no sense in which when we think about Psalm 8, we can say that contradicts what the rest of the word of God says about us outranking all other orders of created being. Praise God. God, when he looks at the church, sees redeemed humanity as outranking all other orders <coughs> of created being. And when we ask why that is the case, in the final analysis, why, the answer is because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. God became a man. And the very act of God incarnate, God in Jesus becoming a man, exalts our humanity. God did not become incarnate in an angel. He became incarnate in flesh and blood. The scripture says the word, the living word that spoke and created the heavens and the earth, the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Furthermore, it is not angels but human beings who experience regeneration, a new birth. We are born again of the Spirit of God. And the Word of God says we become the sons of God. Furthermore, the Word of God says that it is us, men and women, who become partakers of the divine nature. Not angels, not demons, but humanity, redeemed humanity, the church, become partakers of the divine nature. And then it says that there is one mediator at the throne of God, one mediator between God and man. And who is it? It is the man, Christ Jesus. It is not an angel, it is the man. There is a man, a glorified man at the throne of heaven. Do you see how, therefore, the word of God emphasizes that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the redeemed, outrank all other orders of created being? It's little wonder, then, that Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says that angels are ministering spirits 
sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. It's not that we are going to be serving them, but they are going to be serving us. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're told that we will one day judge the world and also judge angels. That's what it says in the Word of God. Because the Apostle Paul is uh, saying to the Corinthians in the local church, don't you go out to, uh, to, to judges in society to, uh, um, to, to uh, <coughs> speak when two of you are in difficulty and you've got a problem between the two of you and to arbitrate. You don't need to go outside. You should be able to arbitrate and make decisions and judgments yourselves. Because here is a proving ground Here's a place where we can actually get used to making decisions and taking judgments, godly judgments, because one day we will judge the world and one day we will even judge angels. And then again, more staggering than ever, this is said to the church, not to angels, not to any orders of ruler and authority in heavenly realm. In Revelation 3.21, the risen Lord says to those who overcome in the church, he's speaking to the church at Laodicea, to those who overcome, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Do you see then how God regards the church? He doesn't regard the church as some pathetic little bunch of people who are clinging on by their fingernails to faith, being overawed by all sorts of things, both in this world and outside this world. He does not see the church like that. God looks at the church and he sees a group of people who are the summit of all that he has poured in. He is the, they're the summit, they outrank all other orders of created being. I couldn't find the reference in the book. I, I thought it was in a book by Robert Lacey uh, called Majesty, a, a biography of, the, of Queen Elizabeth II. But I think I'm right in saying it was she, when she was a little girl that um, was in a crowded room and she wanted to say something and nobody was taking much notice of her. And so she uh, stood up to her full height, being just a little girl still at that time, and she said, um, Attention, everybody, this is royalty speaking. Now, um, in a sense, we can be like that as the church. We are royalty. We are the king's kids, as one book was called, uh, that came out some years ago. We can hold our head up high. We don't need to droop around. We don't need to feel overawed by the thought of demonic spirits. We don't need to feel insignificant in the light of the glorious hosts of angels. Because God says, you are my beloved. You're the one that I've given my life for in Jesus. I came in human form. I have exalted your humanity to the very throne of heaven. Isn't that wonderful? Does that not do something for your spirit? Doesn't it put you in a new perspective? That's God's perspective on the church. Whatever human beings' perspective on the church is, that is God's perspective on you and me when we're in Christ. Secondly, we're coming now to uh, the, the verse itself and what it's really saying. That statement we have to make to really understand uh, the, the meaning of the verse itself. But let's look at, look at it now. His intent was that now, now, 
in the age in which we're living, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So the second thing that we make note of here this morning is that the church of Jesus Christ demonstrates God's wisdom to other orders of spiritual being. The church of Jesus Christ demonstrates God's wisdom to other orders of spiritual beings. Notice it's not the other way around. We might, with our old mentality, have thought that it would have been the other way around. We would have expected to read something like this. His intent was that now, through the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the church. That's not what the word says. It says it's the other way around. It is the church that makes known to rulers and authorities the wisdom of God. So it's speaking here about our role as witnesses. Witnesses to rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. Now we read a lot about and we speak a lot about being good witnesses in the world, don't we? Uh, this, is part, this is what evangelism is all about. The people we live nearby, the uh, boys, the girls at school... Uh, at college, the people we work beside, live in the street with. We have to be good witnesses to demonstrate God's wisdom uh, in, uh, in every way, every part of our lives to those that we live around. But here it is saying something else. It's not talking about that. It's talking about being good witnesses to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The unseen world about us is actually viewing us. Do you realize that? Now, right now, we are being overseen by rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. They're looking. They're inquiring. They're scratching their heads and being puzzled and they're looking. They're wanting to know what's up. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, says, I charge you in the, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus, and the elect angels to keep these instructions. He's talking about the way of life that Timothy has, keeping the practical instructions that he's been laying out, and he's saying, look, you live not only in the view of God and Christ himself, but also the elect angels are watching, they're looking. That's 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21. They are interested, they're viewing they want to see how the people of God are getting on. They want to see what's happening in our lives. They're viewing. So the church of Jesus Christ demonstrates God's wisdom to other orders of spiritual being. But what does this mean? What does actually the writer mean when he talks about making known the manifold wisdom of God? The manifold wisdom of God. One of the first things we have to realize about the word wisdom in the Bible is that it's not talking about intellectual knowledge, about being a clever dick. It's not talking about being able to answer questions on a television quiz show. That's not wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible is always practical. Wisdom is knowing what to do. That's what wisdom is. And so when it talks here about making known God's manifold wisdom... We have to think about this. In what way was God's practical wisdom most perfectly expressed? What was it that he had to know what to do? Surely God knows everything. 
And the answer is that more than anything else, God, in, as he viewed the world, was faced with one big issue that he had to know what to do about. And what was it? It was sin. It was rebellion. It was men and women turning their backs on, on a God who loved them and had created them. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, says that it was Jesus Christ crucified who was the wisdom of God. God's solution, God's practical knowing what to do about the problem of sin and rebellion and separation from God. He talks about how Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, let's go back to our verse. We, the church, are to make known this manifold wisdom of God. In other words, we, the church, by our life, demonstrate to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms the difference Christ crucified has made. We demonstrate that here we are, people who at one time were lost. We were rebellious, we were helpless, we were in darkness... We belong to the kingdom of darkness, but because of Jesus, because Jesus came to earth, died on a cross, what a stupid message you'd think. But because he did, and he rose again, we are different, we're changed, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're part of the family of God. We have eternal life. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so, every time somebody is born again, or wherever a church is a a real community of people who are born again of the Spirit of God, because of Christ having died on a cross, we declare the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities. Do you see that? Is that clear? More than anything, there are many ways in which God's wisdom is declared. The word manifold here means many coloured rich variety of God's wisdom. But supremely, more than anything, God's wisdom is revealed in Jesus, crucified on the cross. Something that would seem to be pathetically uh, disastrous to most people, but it is actually God's wisdom, Jesus on a cross. And that, and only that, can transform lives. And when we are the real church of the redeemed, and we declare that, and we show it by our lives, the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms gasp. Their breath is taken away. The demons realize how foolish they are, how impotent they are, and the angels rejoice. Luke 15, Jesus talks about every time somebody repents and is saved, lost and then found, The angels in heaven have a wonderful party. The angels never ever get over the wonder of somebody repenting and believing. We do, you know. We can get used to it. Oh, somebody else has become a Christian. Hallelujah. What's the weather like? Not the angels. It says in God's word that the angels, every time somebody repents and his life has changed around, it's like it's the first time they've ever heard of it. And they rejoice, bursts of joy, because it is revelation to them. You see, the Word of God actually gives us the hint 
that God's plan of redemption for, for, for his church has been hidden through the ages, even from rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 2. Let me just read it to you. And so every time we demonstrate the wisdom of God in Christ, it's like revelation to rulers and authorities in spiritual realms. We, however, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, uh, verse 6, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. When he uses the word rulers, he's not talking about uh, human rulers. He's talking about supernatural, unseen rulers who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The church of Jesus Christ then, demonstrating the wisdom of God to rulers and authorities in heavenly realm. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, after Peter has talked about the wonderful salvation that we've inherited and that's being kept for us in heaven, imperishable, wonderful salvation, he then comments very briefly, these are things into which angels long to look. <laughs> you see, they don't know it all. We're demonstrating, we're experiencing things they know nothing at all about. And we're demonstrating to them the manifold wisdom of God. The word that he uses, Peter uses there for look, in 1 Peter 1.12, is the same word that is used of Peter when he runs on Resurrection Sunday to the empty tomb. And he looks inside the empty tomb, and John and Luke record that he looked at the empty grave clothes. Same word. There are different words for look in the New Testament. This one's theorio. It means to gaze, to scrutinize carefully. It's not a quick glance. It is scrutinizing carefully, uh, looking inquisitively at. And here he's saying that the angels long to... Uh, to look inquisitively, to gaze at, to grapple with the things that are ours in Christ now that we're saved. John Hosier preached um, a fortnight ago on this same passage of scripture um, to the congregation at Hove. I think you'll, if you get his tape, and I'd recommend it, you'll find that the way he's approached the, the passage is very different from mine, so it'll not be like listening to the same sermon twice. But he does, um, and I'd recommend this, uh, look at 1 Corinthians 11.10, which I'm not doing this morning, where it talks about head coverings, and it talks about it being for the sake of the angels. I recommend you get the tape, all right? And uh, very, very helpful indeed. But one of the other things that he said on his, in his tape, on that message to Hove, was this. And I found this very, very helpful. He said that angels and demons... Rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms pay attention to the church even when the world doesn't. <laughs> Sometimes we might think we're banging our head against a brick wall, nobody's taking any notice, 
The media's got all sorts of rubbish in, but they never take any notice of a genuine church. You get all sorts of trivia on the telly, but where is the real church? The world doesn't seem to be taking any notice, Lord. Well, it will, increasingly, but God's word says that rulers and authorities in heavenly realms will never take their eyes off us. And demons are terrified and flee because of what they see in the church. And angels are caused to be filled with wonder and joy because of what they see demonstrated amongst the redeemed people of God that is the church. I wonder what kind of performance we're putting on. Uh, I was talking to Liz earlier this morning about how I could draw an analogy And we came to the conclusion that it might be like this. I want you to imagine uh, that you're an actor on the West End. I know it's a leap of imagination for us, but just imagine that you're an actor or actress uh, in the theatre at the West End of London. And uh, you're there because uh, a friend of yours who actually wrote an interesting play asked you to play a leading role in the play. And as a result of playing it, on the West End now, your name has become very well known. You've really made it in your career as an actor because of this play, which is having a long, long run on the West End, and it is quite an interesting play because it's got something to say. It's a message play, and it's a play that actually has got something to say about the state of the world and the answer to the state of the world. And it's uh, much talked about, and every night you play uh, your performance on the, in the West End on the stage, and you give of your best because there are people there watching, some more nights than others, but they're watching you in the theatre. And then one, one weekend, there is a very special audience The special audience is because that weekend in London there is a summit conference. And there are leaders of world governments from all around the world are in London. And they've decided to have a night off and they've come to the West End to the theatre. All right? And there, in your audience now, are not only ordinary men and women from the country and a few visitors from overseas, but you've also now got the most influential rulers and authorities in your audience from all around the world. And you know that as you step out on that, uh, on that uh, stage that night, that you need to give of your very best, not just because these people are more important than other people, not that at all, but you know that this message of the play, and perhaps even uh, the kind of thing the author of the play has got to, to say, can reverberate right around the world. The vibrations can be felt right around the world if the message of this play and your performance and the impact of what's on the author's heart and mind can get through that night right around the world into all sorts of nooks and crannies uh, on the world stage. Well, what kind of performance are we putting up? I mean, as we are the church of Jesus Christ, even when nobody else is watching us, when nobody else is in your home, when you're doing things that you could look over your shoulder and nobody would see what you're doing, you are demonstrating to rulers and authorities the manifold wisdom of Christ. There are times, sadly, when we make the demons leap for joy and the angels weep or scratch their head in consternation when once again we go back into the old sins that we are now freed from and we are not bound to and we're not under the slavery of 
<laughs> and that we choose to go back into. God says, no, you show rulers and authorities in heavenly realms the manifold wisdom of God, the difference Christ makes to a life because he died on a cross. Thirdly, is that the church of Jesus Christ has authority that supersedes that of all other orders of being. The church of Jesus Christ has authority that supersedes that of all other order of beings. Now, again, we're exploring our relationship to rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. We're getting it into perspective. I think for many of us, not, uh, not before time, I think many of us have had a completely distorted perspective on our relationship to the unseen world and uh, f- have felt as if we're hounded, that uh, somehow we're at the beck and call of, of uh, the, 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 uh, the unseen. We're not at all. The Word of God says that the church of Jesus Christ has authority that supersedes that of all other order of beings. There's a difference between authority and power. Let me explain this with, again, an an example. An ambassador. You think of yourself as an ambassador in a foreign country. And an ambassador has a great deal of authority, but in himself, as an individual, very little power. In a foreign country... Uh, he would not be able to put up much of a fight against the people of the land or the army or the police or whatever of the land. And he's just an individual. Unless he's a Rambo who can go around with some great machine gun and annihilate everybody, and that's just fiction. But authority he's got, because the ambassador goes before a foreign ruler and he has the full authority of his nation of his government, of his ruler behind him. And because of that authority, one step further back, he has the power of that, ru- that ruler and that nation and that government as well. And it is that, in that sense that the church of Jesus Christ has authority that supersedes that of all other order of being. Yeah, it may be that angels and demons are able to do things and they have qualities that may feel, that make us feel as if we're, you know, left behind. But in terms of authority, the Word of God says we have an authority that leaves theirs way behind. Absolutely, way behind. Why? Because the church has the authority of Christ. And Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's why the church has authority that supersedes any other, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. You get the same kind of message when Jesus is talking to the disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Peter has just confessed Jesus as the Christ. And he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates, do you know what that means? Basically in eastern days, in the ancient east, the gate was the place where people gathered to plan and to talk and to review and sometimes to scheme. And so, 
Jesus is saying all the plans, all the schemes, all the discussions of Hades will never be able to overcome the church. Isn't that wonderful? That's what that means. And then he says, I will give you, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That is authority. Now that's not spoken to Peter personally because that exact uh, statement is repeated two chapters later to all the disciples. So here is the authority of the redeemed of God. We have the very authority of Jesus who is over all, Lord over all. And we have this authority to bind and to loose on earth and to bind and to loose on heaven. Now, what does that mean? How do we wield that authority? Is it just pretty language? Is it just religious talk? No, it isn't. The church exerts, wields its authority when the church prays. When the church comes in mighty praise and thanksgiving to God and brings a spirit of prayer with thanksgiving, the church then is at its mightiest. We're not at our mightiest when we've got all sorts of influence in the political world and so on. Although we pray that God will put crucial people in key positions. The church was not at its mightiest when Constantine was the ruler of the Roman Empire and therefore you could say we're all Christians now. The church was not at its mightiest when the Pope seemed to be the dominant world ruler. That was not the authority of the church that God's word was talking about. The authority of the church is the authority that we have in prayer coming to God. Last Tuesday and then also last weekend at Bracknell uh, some of us here heard Um, Malcolm Keyes talk about his visit to South Korea to that church where Pastor Paul Yongi Cho began with five people in a tent some 20 years ago or so five people in a tent determined to pray that was all, to pray and as they prayed as they prayed God began to work amongst them people would come along and be prayed for and healed the news spread people would come along and become Christians the news spread When Markham was out there, the latest church membership was 526,601. And when Paul Yongicho was asked, what is the secret? How does your church grow? Why is your church the biggest church in the world? He says, we pray. We pray. They've built a a, a mountain retreat called Prayer Mountain that holds up to 10,000, never has less than 4,000 there, where people go off there, take a week's holiday, and they go there to pray. And things happen. People become Christians. People are, are set free. The church is added to. You see, the church has an authority that supersedes that of all other order of beings. When it exerts that authority in prayer and mighty praise and thanksgiving to God. No wonder demons tremble when the church prays. Because it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we have weapons, spiritual weapons, that are able to pull down strongholds. That's what the word of God says. 
And no wonder the angels rejoice when we pray. Because when the church prays, people become Christians. There's a fascinating verse right at the end of the New Testament in Revelation 22. And this is what it says. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. What does that mean? The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Well, it is the Spirit of God pleading with the world. It is the Spirit of God interceding on behalf of men and women. But it is also the bride. Who is the bride? The bride is the church. The bride is the church that belongs to Jesus, who's the bridegroom. The bride being prepared to meet the bridegroom. And it is the church that also needs to be saying, Come! It is the church at prayer. The Spirit and the bride say, Come! And when the church prays, Things happen. Things change. Tonight we have a prayer meeting. It's been mentioned already. 7.30 at Clarendon Villas. The church meeting dynamically to pray. And things happen when the church prays in authority. I'll finish now. Did you notice as we went through the, uh, the three points this morning, the three statements, that in each of them, the church has a glorious standing all because of Jesus. Do you notice that? In the first one, we as the church outrank all rulers and authorities in heavenly realms because of Jesus who took our humanity. In the second one, we demonstrate to rulers and authorities the wisdom of God which is at its height in Jesus crucified on the cross. And thirdly, we have an authority that is superior to all rulers and authorities. And it's that of Jesus Christ who has been given all authority on he in heaven and on earth. We, my friends, are a glorious church in God's eyes. We can lift our heads up this morning. And we can not only lift our heads up, but we can also lift our voices up. I'd like you to stand now, please.